If you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. We are continuing our series in 1 Peter. As you might remember, Peter is writing, has written to a number of churches located in Asia Minor, known as Turkey today, modern-day Turkey. And in those churches in Asia Minor, those churches have been established for about 30 years. In that 30-year history, these new Christians, they have experienced some hostility, some growing hostility. And the hostility is only going to continue to grow. And the hostility is that they have begun to follow Christ. The hostility is that they no longer indulge in the cultural norms of the day, the immoralities, the idol worship. They, they no longer live the lifestyle they once lived. And as a result of that, both family, friends, and just those in the area are persecuting these believers. Not, not physical persecution at this time, but primarily persecution through ridicule and mockery and accusations and rejection. And, and so Peter writes to these believers. He writes to these men and women who are, are brothers and sisters in Christ to him to encourage them and to strengthen them and to help them be sustained in their relationship with God. And I just, he writes this letter, and as we've been making our way through it, we are now in chapter 5, and we begin in verse 8 this morning. And read along with me, if you would. Peter writes, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Oh Lord, give life to your word this morning through your spirit. And Lord, I pray that each person here with you through your word, that they would experience your presence and your grace, and that you would bring encouragement and refreshment to their souls. In Christ's name, amen. Jim, where's Jim? Callan, see you around. Do I need to do anything that keeps going in and out, Chuck? No? All right, I'm just going to keep talking. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, the main character named Christian who has come to faith in Christ, who has left the city of destruction, is on the king's highway heading toward the celestial city where he finds himself in this place called the Valley of Humiliation. Christian went carefully down the hill and then into a dark valley. There was no breeze, no sound, but the grinding of chipped pebbles under his feet. Everything seemed perfectly still. Christian's hand went down to his sword. He had not heard anything, but he felt. And then he did hear something huge, monstrously huge, and its paces trembled the earth. Christian stood firm. He had no armor for his back. The thing came on, and then it was before him. 
The rocks it touched glowed, and by their light Christian saw the creature. The scales on its chest shone red, and its great wings seemed to fan the scales into greater heat. Its hands and feet were clawed like a bear's, its mouth fitted with teeth like a lion's. It breathed its name, Apollyon. Where are you from? asked the monster, advancing closer. Christian drew his sword and answered, I come from the city of destruction. Come no closer. Come no further, questioned Apollyon. Come no further. One of my own subjects commands me. I am no subject of yours. I am a pilgrim now on my way to the celestial city. Well, said Apollyon in the sweet voice, I do not wish to lose my subject so lightly. Return to the city of destruction, and I promise to make your service easy. No, said Christian, you can offer me nothing. I'm no longer your servant. Come no further. His servants do not come to a good end, gloated Apollyon. Many have never left this valley. Christian made no answer but to hold his shield before him. And after all, how do you know he will have you as his servant? You've proved traitor to your first lord, and already you have been disloyal to your second. You almost failed in the slough of despond. You tried disloyal ways of removing your burden. You almost turned back at the sight of lions. You took pride in telling of your soul. But the prince I serve is merciful and ready to forgive. Apollyon beat his wings, rose up and screeched, I am an enemy of Emmanuel. I hate him and his laws and his country. He landed in front of Christian. But most of all, the monster hissed, I hate his pilgrims. Christian stood firm. I am on the king's way to holiness. To serve you would be death. And Apollyon, holding a flaming spear over its shoulder, I swear I will spill your soul. It hardly finished speaking before it threw spear after spear at Christian's heart. Peter has just prior to this verse we read this morning finished providing his readers with some of the most encouraging words in all of Scripture in verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Throughout, he strengthen these who suffer because they live in a world that is hostile to God and them, and a hostility at times that can be so intense, it can tempt them to great anxiety. It can tempt them to, to fear. And there is there's a reason behind these anxieties. They can feel that... Because they have, as Peter now elaborates, they have an enemy that is, that is much greater than the people who are persecuting them in the flesh. There is an enemy that Peter is well acquainted with, and this enemy's name is Satan. He, he writes these words he writes these words in verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He, he writes these words with much history in mind. Peter writes these words from his own history, from his own past 
experience of this adversary, the devil, this once angel of light named Satan. In Luke 22, 31 through 34, the Last Supper, Jesus is sitting around with his disciples and he looks at Simon and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Jesus makes this stunning prediction. And Peter gives this stunningly arrogant response. His arrogant response, which is not surprising why he writes in verse 6 of this chapter about humility, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And just before that, clothe yourselves with humility. It's not surprising why humility is so important to Peter because he remembers his arrogant response. It, it all comes crashing down just to predict in Peter's life. He is sifted by Satan. Satan demanded to sift him, and Jesus says yes. And as we read in Luke 22, he was sifted. The reality of Satan's existence and determination to destroy every follower of Christ and his hatred for Christ is all too real to Peter. And Peter wants it to be all too real to us. This, this time of sifting for Peter is a time he will never forget. It is a time he will be reminded of every time he hears a rooster crow for the rest of his life. But Peter learned from that. And as we read in Acts 5, Peter is, is beaten He's flogged for being a follower of Christ, but he does not turn back. He actually rejoices at being worthy to count it as a follower of Christ to suffer for him. He has, he has learned. And so, so in, in this passage in Luke, Peter has been told by Jesus, listen, when you get through this, yes, Satan has, has asked to sift you. I have, he's demanded to sift you. I said, yes, but, but as, as Jesus said, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. That's what Peter's doing here. He's strengthening his brothers. He's writing to them, strengthening them in this entire letter, and particularly here as he remembers his own sifting, that they may not be sifted by Satan. Strengthen the brothers. He, he knows. Oh, Peter, Peter knows. And he writes to protect his friends, to, to care for his friends, because every follower of Christ, every one of us in this room who is... can be sifted, is vulnerable to this enemy. And in light of the suffering that these Christians are facing, 
in, in, from hostile unbelievers, he sure that encourages them as, as Paul had written to the church in Ephesus, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Peter, Peter wants to, to lay this foundation, to undergird them, to say, okay, look, you, you have an enemy out there. He wants to sift you and he's going to use suffering. That, that's, that's what he's using to sift you. And so he writes to them. And he appeals in three ways to strengthen their faith. To strengthen them for sometimes whatever battles lie ahead. The sifting that could come. The temptations that they will face. The persecution they will experience. The suffering they will feel as he writes here. He writes to them. He gives three appeals to them to strengthen their faith. The first one is this. He writes, be alert. Be alert by being sober-minded and watchful. Verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Be sober-minded and watchful. You know, in 5, in 5, 7, we learn that God cares. We learn, you know, casting all your anxieties on him, on God, because he cares for you. We learn that he cares. He cares for us in our sufferings. He cares for us when we are anxious. He, he cares for us. But now Peter shifts his attention to this other, another crucial matter because twice, twice in his letter, Peter's warned them, be sober-minded. In 1.13, he wrote, therefore, preparing your minds for action... In other words, be ready to, to face the, the suffering for being a follower of Christ, for believing in Christ. Simply for believing in Christ, you will suffer. You will be different. If you are truly a genuine believer, follower of Christ, you will be different. And you will suffer for it. You are, you are well aware of of many who now consider the Bible itself hate speech. Because it doesn't hold up to the cultural norms of the day. God's word opposes many of the cultural norms of the day. And so, and so Peter is just making it clear, hey, be sober-minded. Prepare your mind for action. And then in 4.7, he continues. He says, listen, the end of all things is at hand. In other words, we're, it's, we're, in, the, we're in the age where, where Christ will return one day. Maybe not in my lifetime or lifetimes, but he will return. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And here he writes, be sober-minded, be watchful. Because you have an enemy. You have an adversary. Listen, God, Peter's making it clear, God isn't the only spiritual being who takes an interest in us. In, in seven verse 7, we see God cares for us. We cast our cares because he cares. He, God has an interest in his children. He has an interest in those he loves and those he cares for. But does Satan? Oh, Satan has an interest. Absolutely. We, we have a supernatural adversary named Satan. And listen, there are two views that the Christian world, and I'm not even going to get out into the, the unbelieving world, but the Christian world, some overstate Satan's power as if he possesses omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence. He's everywhere. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. But he's only a created being. He's finite and he's limited. Now, the other 
group, others just fail to take him seriously enough, underestimating him by reducing him to the, the cartoon village of the red tights and, you know, the, the, the spear, and, and, and that's all they see. And, and they just ignore him and not are thinking, oh, yeah, you know, God is sovereign, God is powerful. I don't even have to think about this guy. C.S. Lewis, in his wonderful work, creative work, the Screwtape Letters, if you've ever read them. Screwtape is writing to, Screwtape is one of the, the chief demons, and he's writing to his underling, a demon protege named Wormwood, and Screwtape writes, I do not think you'll have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark, talking about the person the demon is trying to lead away from Christ. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. He could not ask for a better cover than the illusion that he does not exist. Listen, he exists. God's made it clear in his word. We have an adversary. Satan literally means adversary, enemy. Devil means slanderer, deceiver. We, we must be aware of his presence and his purpose and his power. We, we learn in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, that he is the accuser of the brethren, accusing us of being failures before God day and night. And he also, here's, he also accuses God to us. God does not love you. God is not there. God is not faithful. God does not care where is God when you need him? Where was God in this situation? That is what the adversary does. And oftentimes we listen. We hear his voice. He attempts to destroy our faith by making false charges against God. Isn't that what happened in Eden? In this beautiful setting and he comes Satan comes along and he says to Adam and Eve did God really say he's he knows that if you eat that you'll become like God isn't it interesting how much that Adam and Eve's experience was like Satan's experience who wanted to become like God and so he lies. And, and Peter, Peter has no illusions concerning the real existence of, a, of, of the devil, nor any doubts concerning his vicious character and his villainous deeds. He, he's personally aware of Satan's ability. He is aware of Satan's power. This letter is not, this letter, brothers and sisters, this letter is not an academic exercise in teaching you just doctrine. That, that's not what this letter is. It is a personal account of Peter's own life and his own experience where he experienced the full force of the devil sifting him. So he, he writes remembering his own failures. And so he writes, be sober-minded, which was the very thing that Peter was not when Jesus said, Satan has demanded to sift you. 
be sober-minded. He writes to strengthen them against this dangerous foe who is filled with rage and hatred towards God and wants to destroy the people of God. He's intent, this foe, this this devil is intent on destroying their faith. He uses persecution and suffering to get to deny them and to, to get them to deny Christ and to have them turn away from following after God. Now, I realize, I mean, we're, if you were, now you're, you're my age, you remember the, the early 70s. And um, I lived in this area and this movie came out called The Exorcist. I don't know if, how you remember The Exorcist, but, but it took place, it was supposed to take place in Georgetown, um, down, downtown, and, and, there, and there a bunch of the filming was done there, and it was just this fascination, and there was this set of steps at the very end where the, the, the um, protagonist dies um, in, in destroying they, the antagonist, the devil, at that time, and everybody's going to Georgetown to see these steps, and I've been there to see the steps. They're just steps, uh, but they're long steps, and you kill the devil on the steps, um, and so the exorcist was really big, and, and and everybody was like, you know, really, you know, Satan-focused. If we believe in God, we believe in a supernatural God, a sovereign God, a God who has created the heavens and the earth, a God who has created us. If we believe in God, we better believe that he has an enemy. And not take him lightly. We better believe that he exists. That we're not talking about the exorcist when we read 5, 8, and 9. We're talking about what used to be an angel of light. A created being who rebelled against God. We better believe. Because if we do not, we will become vulnerable. And so Peter writes, be sober-minded. Don't, don't be all over the place. Be sober-minded. And then he, then he writes, be watchful. And so with, with this vivid imagery, Peter is imploring them to be alert and watchful. A lion is on the prowl. Be sober-minded, be watchful, you're adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter implores them. He's saying, listen, be, be alert. There's this lion prowling for victims. He's waiting to ambush. He's waiting to pounce. He's waiting to devour. So this is a call to be awake. There is someone who wants to minimize, marginalize, destroy your faith. And he uses this roar to bring fear that he might devour your faith. And that roar, as Peter, in the context of this book, that roar is suffering for being a follower of Christ. That's how he gets you to be fearful. D. Edmund Hebert, in his commentary, writes, Christians 
should not merely keep themselves awake, but alert, giving constant attention to approaching danger. Peter personally knew its importance, having tragically failed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Casting our anxiety upon God does not absolve us of the duty of personal vigilance. Worry is condemned. Watchfulness is demanded. Like a, a roaring lion describes his fierce and, and this determined activity. He's a vicious beast. And in Peter's day, the, the church was already experiencing the frightening roar of, of, the, uh, of suffering and persecution that the saints were experiencing. They were being intimidated and they were becoming easy prey. And so Peter writes to strengthen them that they wouldn't because the ferocity of the devil has already been displayed in persecution in the early church. And if you are awake this morning and not fallen asleep yet, if you are awake and you have read anything online and you've seen what's going on in our culture, you're aware that the ferocity of the enemy is growing more and more in our country this day. Nothing like what goes on in some of the other countries I visited like India and Burma and Sri Lanka where it's either Muslim or, or Hindu, which are the majority religions, and Christians are, are persecuted. Or what you hear going on in North Korea or China. Yes, around the world, Christians, followers of Christ, are being devoured. They are under, they are under the roaring of a lion who is bringing much suffering to them. And it's not getting any better here. And so Peter writes, be watchful. This lion is constantly on the prowl. He is persistent as he looks for someone to devour. He's looking for total destruction of his victims. His aim is not merely to harass or, or to injure. His desire is to kill. His desire is to destroy. And he is subtle at it. He is very subtle at it. Years ago when I was in India, uh, Yesu Padam, my, my very dear friend, took me to an Indian zoo. Now, for a week he was telling me he was going to take me to the Jew. And I kept thinking, you're going to take me to the Jew? And well, I, Indians have a lot of trouble pronouncing Z's, and so they use J's. I didn't know that. And so for a week, I'm thinking I'm going to the Jew. And I'm wondering, who is the Jew? Until we show up at the zoo. And there we get to the zoo, and my goal was I wanted to see a cobra. I'd been in India probably 30 times, never saw a cobra. And what idiot wants to see a cobra? I wanted to see a cobra. So he takes me to the Jew to see the cobra. And, and we get to the, the, the zoo and, and we get to the cobra cage and there's no cobras in the cobra cage. And so what a great disappointment that was. I still have yet to see a cobra in India. We go over to the, the tiger's cage. And it's a glass high glass. You see just grass, maybe three feet high. And I see no tiger. And I'm standing there, and I'm standing there, and I'm thinking, this is the worst Jew I've ever been to. <laughs> and I'm looking down, and literally, out of nowhere, from three feet of grass, appears this massive tiger. If I had been in that cage, I would be dead. He 
was so subtle and so stealthy. He just showed up right there. That's what Peter's talking about. Be watchful. Be watchful. He is prowling around like a roaring lion. Thomas Schreiner says this, the devil roars like a lion to induce fear in the people of God. In other words, persecution is the roar by which he tries to intimidate believers in the hope that they will capitulate at the prospect of suffering. If believers deny their faith, then the devil has devoured them, bringing them back into his fold. The contrast between God and the devil is quite striking. God tenderly cares for his children, five and six, inviting them to bring their worries to him so he can sustain them. God promises to protect his flock in all their distress. Conversely, the devil's aim is not to comfort, but to terrify believers. He does not want to deliver them from fear, but to devour their faith. Peter warned believers to be vigilant. The roaring of the devil is the crazed anger of a defeated enemy. And if they do not fear his ferocious bark, they will never be consumed by his bite. And the only way we're not going to fear his ferocious bark or be consumed by his bite is what? Be watchful. Be sober-minded and be watchful. And that's the first. Be alert by being sober-minded and being watchful. Secondly, Peter writes, be steadfast. Be steadfast by resisting the devil and being firm in your faith. Verse 9, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Resist him firm in your faith. Peter, Peter has a remedy and a response to this formidable adversary. And this is it. It's don't cower, but resist him and stand firm in the faith. To cower before the devil is, is really to invite sure defeat. But James 4.7, listen, James 4.7 tells us this. James repeats the same words that Peter has written. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Amen. Scripture urges Christians to flee from various evils. Flee immorality, free, flee youthful lust, free, flee the love of money. But nowhere does it say to flee the devil. That, that would be futile. That would be uh, a futile effort that, that would end up actually having us get devoured. He is to flee from us. We are not to flee from him. Resistance, resistance is not passive, but an active engagement against an enemy. I had a great aunt in, in France who was part of the resistance during World War II. It was, it was not a passive life that she was living. It was one of, of taking the fight to the enemy. And so it is, it is not, to resist is not passive. Believers will not triumph over the devil if they remain passive. He will not flee from them if they remain passive. And, and so Peter explains exactly what this resistance means. The, it, the call is is to be firm in their faith. Not, not heroic acts by us. Not, I'm going to defeat the devil. No, resisting the devil means having confidence in God. That's what it means to be firm in faith. To be firm in faith 
means to believe that God is your warrior, that God is the one who is your protector, that God is your refuge, that God is your strength. Faith, faith here literally means just believing the gospel message. Satan is a supernatural being for sure who is powerful, but not all powerful, but powerful still. And, and on our own, we are no match for him. So victory lies in holding firm and fast to the gospel, to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross where he defeated the devil. That, that is where our hope lies. That is where our strength lies. That is where our victory lies. We, we don't have the strength. We have no strength to defeat the, the devil. Just like we have no strength, we have no ability to save ourselves. We were dead, Scripture says, in our trespasses and sins. Christ died for our sins. He came to earth. He bore our flesh. He wore our flesh. He suffered our temptations without sinning. And he suffered on the cross. And he died on the cross. But he rose again, which means he did defeat the devil. And so that is where our victory lies. That's gospel. That's truth. That's hope. That's, That's what gives us life. Our greatest and only weapon in resisting is our faith in the gospel. This truth that God is who he said he is and he has done what he promised to do. And and it is gospel truths that we, we hold to when we are assaulted and we are being sifted when when the devil accuses us romans 8 1 we we speak god's word there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus when we fail and sin first john 1 9 if we confess our sins he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when God seems distant, Romans eight thirty six. for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We fight with the word of God. That, that's, that's our strength. That's where we're firm in faith. The word of the unchanging word of God, the authoritative word of God, the all-powerful word of God, the inerrant word of God, the infallible word of God, the all-sufficient word of God. That's what we use. That's the sword of the Spirit, Scripture says. That's our sword. That's what we fight with. Apollyon threw spear after spear at Christian. They came so fast he could not keep up and soon he was wounded. For half a day they fought. Christian, little by little, giving ground. As Christian took another step backward, Apollyon flew into the air and landed hard on the ground in front of him, throwing him off balance. Apollyon screeched with delight, flew up again, and this time landed on Christian. He screeched once, raised his clawed hand, and hurled it towards Christian's face. But at that moment, as Emmanuel would have it, Christian reached out, caught his sword. Apollyon had exposed his side, and Christian thrust his sword deep into the monster. We are more than conquerors, Christian yelled, through him who loves us. 
With a hideous yell of horror and pain, the monster jolted back, clutching its right side. It screeched twice, and then, one wing hanging limply, it lunged away into the darkness. Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress story, an allegory, is just rich with this picture of God powerfully protecting and caring for Christian, and yet the reality of who Christian has to face to make his way to Celestial City. That again and again, as you read of Christian on the King's Highway, he is consistently being sifted. We have a Savior who is on our side who has overcome the world. I'll never forget my, my, the first month I was a believer. Somebody, this is 1976, um, theology wasn't anywhere near my world whatsoever. It was just fascinating books about Christian life. And this one guy gave me a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. And I remember reading The Late Great Planet Earth about the devil and about the devil's number. And I'm reading it as I was going to bed one night and, and I'm, I fall asleep and I'm laying there and then I'm beginning to have this nightmare and I hear and the beast's number is 666 and I and I thought I opened my eyes and I saw this this beast this devil floating above me I was terrified and all I could do at that moment was literally croak out the name Jesus and I woke up immediately just like that turned on all the lights and slept that way for the next month <laughs> But what I learned was this. Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death. The devil is a defeated foe. We are not defeated because of Christ. We live because of the gospel. And so we resist. We stand firm. The gospel is what we hold to. Colossians 1.23. Continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you heard. There it is, brothers and sisters. You don't shift from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. Now listen, if, you, if you've heard the gospel and you've not responded to the gospel, you're not sure you're a Christian or you know you're not a Christian. Listen, you, you, are, you are without hope in this world, the scripture says. But God has offered hope in his son, Jesus Christ. And you, you don't have to live hopeless and weary and wondering what, what life is all about. You, you can turn to Christ. He says that all who turn to him, he will never cast away. He will, he will receive them. And so to, to all who, who would receive Christ, he receives them. And so if you are not a believer today, my appeal to you is consider Christ. Amen. Consider Christ. And speak to me or, or to one of the other folks in this church, whoever brought you, about this wonderful truth and relationship you can have with God. Now the third and final is 
be encouraged. Be encouraged that you are not alone. Peter writes in verse 9, not only says resist him firm in your faith, but he says this, knowing, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter, Peter wants him to, his readers to see that they're not isolated and neither are you. You're here this morning. You're not isolated. You're not walking out this life in Christ by yourself. You're not having to fight this, this foe by yourself. You're not having to stand against this, this enemy by yourself. You are part of a family. You're part of the church, God's church. When you were saved, you were saved into the church. You were not saved into individualism. You were saved into God's church, the body of Christ. You are, you are one. It's what baptism's all about, what we're doing this evening. We're, we're bringing people into the church. They're being united to us through the sacrament of baptism. And that's what Peter is saying here. You are not alone. Amen. These folks are not alone. The moment you were born again, you were never alone. You've never been alone at that moment. These, and, and, and Peter says here, the same, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So those who suffer in places like North Korea or China or India or, or you know, wherever in the world, You suffer with them. You know their suffering. Even though you may not know their physical suffering, you know their suffering. That's why we pray. That's why we care. That's why we give. That's why we serve. It's why we go. So we, we know they're not alone, and we know we're not alone. And we're not alone here. Second Thessalonians 2, 14 says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ, in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. In other words, you were, they were suffering. Their, their suffering has been going on for following Christ. And, and as, as the folks suffer around the world, as you at times in this church experience suffering, you are not alone. And, and your brothers and sisters here are here to, to encourage you, to strengthen you, to be watchful for you, to be sober-minded for you, to help resist and stand firm in the faith for you. That's why we, we, we show up here on a Sunday morning. That's why we gather together in small groups. That's why we build relationships on a daily basis. Why? Because we stand together. Amen. Thank you. Notice when, when Peter was sifted, there wasn't another disciple around him in that courtyard. He was all alone. He was all alone. So Peter, Peter is, is just telling him, you can't fight this battle alone. This, this letter, this letter was written to an entire church and it was read out loud to an entire church. And so when these words are written, resist him firm in your faith, it's, to, it's being read to you knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced throughout the world. Listen, lions, you ever watch Animal Planet? Oh, I mean, I know, it's gory, but it is so cool to watch lions eat gazelles. I mean, to catch them and, and, and just run them down. But you know how they get to them? They get to the stragglers, the ones who are separated from the herd. The ones who've been isolated, that's the ones they kill. That's the ones they get. Those are the ones who die. 
Satan demanded to sift Peter. And Jesus said, yes. In Job, God offered Satan the opportunity to sift Job. And Satan took it. In 419, Peter writes, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 419 shows us that God allows sifting because in one chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your faith will be tested to prove its genuineness. It will, it will, as Peter writes in 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Don't be surprised that the fiery trial is going to come. But, but if you remember what, what Jesus said to Peter, he said, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you. He said this, I am praying for you. That's what he told Peter. I am praying for you, and you will recover. You will, and look, look how he's recovered. Look how he's recovered. I am, I am praying for you. And in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, consequently, speaking of Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is always praying for you. God is praying for you that you will not, that you will not fail. And you will not fail. You will not, even, even when you are being sifted, even when you are experiencing the suffering, the roaring of the lion, you will not fail. Let me tell you why you will not fail. Sinclair Ferguson says this. He says, Satan cannot ultimately destroy a Christian believer, but he is able to destroy our assurance, our joy, and our pleasure in the gospel. So we need to find grace in the grace of God, a defense against those fiery darts of the evil one. The most sinister thoughts Satan insinuates into our minds are not enticements to sin, but suspicions about God himself. He seeks to distort our view of God and our understanding of his gracious character. Satan's plan is to blind us to God's grace and to demand, dismantle our trust in him, crushing our love for him and destroying all pleasures of grace. But he is praying for us. He is praying for us. Listen, Peter's failure, Peter's failure as well as our own at times when we fail the Lord, is enough to discourage any soul and convince someone to turn away from Christ. I've just tried. I, I've just given up. I, it, my experience has been so bad. I just, I, I have failed here. My life is a failure. I don't know how God could accept me. I, I'm just, what's the point? Which are just the lies of the evil one. Satan and sin can have that kind of power, powerful effect on all of us, brothers and sisters. Peter, Peter went out after denying Christ three times. He went out and he wept bitterly. And then he left the ministry and he went back to fishing. 
But the grace of God was not done in his life. Not done. Not because he was an apostle, but because he was a child of God. Listen, are we vulnerable? Absolutely. Our, but our salvation is secure in Christ. Our faith is being proven not being destroyed by God. It's being proven through the trials God brings. It's being strengthened as Peter writes. This is to strengthen you this morning in your trials. In John 17, 5, Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world as he's praying to his father, but that you keep them from the evil one. God's praying for us. 2 Thessalonians 3, 3, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. You have an, you have an advocate who is watching you and caring for you and praying for you and protecting you from the adversary. Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, under your feet, not under his feet, under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And then John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Your salvation in Christ is secure. It is secure. The gospel has made that clear. The gospel has made that promise. It is secure. But you have an enemy and he wants to undermine your faith. He wants you to deny Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, the application is in these two verses. Be sober-minded. Be watchful resist and stand firm in your faith and know you are not alone. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are with us, that even though we do have an enemy, you are so faithful to care for us. You love your children. You love your church. And so, Lord, we just once again, we submit ourselves to your your leadership. We submit ourselves to you, Father, as our sovereign Lord. And Father, we ask that you would help us to be watchful and help us to be sober-minded, not fearful, not terrified, but to stand firm in the faith that we might live lives that bring glory to your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.